And now, from our studios in Kansas City, Sci-Fi For Me Radio is live from the bunker. All right, here we go. Welcome, everyone. It is Thursday, May 19th. It is the last day of the week for this show. We are live from the bunker. My name is Jason Hunt. I'm the editor here at Sci-Fi For Me. We are broadcasting live to Odyssey, Facebook, and YouTube, which means that you can jump in the live chat if you are here with us live. Uh, You can also leave a comment if you're not with us live. And if you prefer, we are available as a podcast as well. And I got to say, I looked at the numbers this morning. Uh, Yesterday, we've already got over 200 downloads, which comparatively speaking is is a lot so um so that's good to see and it's good to see that uh, we've got uh our listeners in uh in uh what did i what did i say had shown up again romania romania is showing back up on the map huh egypt, yesterday. egypt yeah egypt is still on there latvia romania uk ireland spain germany good to have all of you with us as well and of course any of you who want to leave comments or send us email feedback you're more than welcome we do read every note we do read all of the comments all of the feedback live from the bunker at sci-fi for me.com is the email address and we do have a newsletter you can sign up for so uh we uh we have a lot going on and we'd like for you to be a part of it so anyway all right so let us do this. Uh, a quick programming note. I just I want to let you know this is possibly going to be a shorter show today because I'm expecting a delivery at the compound and I have to be there for it. So uh, we'll see. And and as a consequence of that, my notifications are still on, so I can hear the phone ring. So, so we'll see. We'll see what happens. Uh, if you get if you hear a little. You know, every now and again, a little blinky or something that goes off. That's that's why. So, all right. Um, I mentioned this earlier this week, and I uh, I said we were going to do it. I've talked to a couple of people about doing about having a conversation about it, but I'm going to go ahead and and jump into this because this Vanity Fair piece on Star Wars is a little, to me, a little bit of revisionist history going on. And I'll, I, I say that, and some people are going to say, well, maybe, okay, uh, Kathleen Kennedy's lying about some stuff, basically. I, it could be characterized that way. Now, now there are... There are some things in this article that I know are being presented differently than they have been in the past. And the reason that I know is because I was there. So, we're going to get into this. This is a, this is an article by Anthony Bresnikan, dated May 18th, Vanity Fair, the headline, Star Wars Forever, How Kathleen Kennedy is Expanding the Galaxy. Now, here we go with burnishing Kathleen Kennedy's career. And I think that's what this is. Now, you got this Annie Leibovitz photograph. Annie Leibovitz is the go-to person for photography when it comes to this kind of thing. And and she is a phenomenal photographer, no question about that. She's She's able to put together some really, really... Uh, classic and iconic and effective imagery. This one, however, I have a couple of questions. As a photographer myself, um, I have to wonder at at the strategy here, because if you look at this photograph all by itself, 
you have uh, you have here uh, for those of you who are listening to this podcast, you have Dave, uh, left to right Dave Filoni, Deborah Chow, John Favreau, Kathleen Kennedy. I'll get back to the to the look on Dave Filoni's face here in a minute, <laughs> but for some reason, Annie Leibovitz has Deborah Chow and Kathleen Kennedy both looking out of frame. While at the same time, Favreau and Filoni are looking directly at the camera. Uh, this is what we call addressing the camera. When you face when you face the lens, you're addressing the camera. And f- I don't understand the motivation behind putting Deborah Chow's eye line off to the left and Kathleen Kennedy's eye line off to the right. They're looking at something else. Besides the camera, where Filoni and Favreau are looking directly at the lens. They're looking at us. And a lot of times when you do something like this, it's uh, there's a there's an emotional connection component to this. When you have somebody who's looking directly at the camera, and we see this with podcasting and with, with the YouTube videos and all these other different things where if we're looking at the camera, if we're addressing the camera, I'm talking into the camera lens, I'm talking to you. There's more of a connection here because I'm looking at you. We're making eye contact-ish, right? Whereas if I'm over here and I'm looking off this direction and I'm looking over here and I'm looking over here and I'm looking over here, I'm looking at all these different six different ways from Sunday directions, there's less of a connection. And it feels like, just looking at this photograph, it feels like Kathleen Kennedy especially doesn't want to be there. And many makes a point. Deborah Chow looks uncomfortable. I would I would be uncomfortable too if I was sitting on that kind of a chair, the arm of that chair, because there's nothing there except for this metal rod. I okay. This is this is it is a it is a, a weird pose. And I don't know what's going on with Kennedy's outfit, but she looks like she's trying to cosplay Han Solo. She's got the white tunic. She's got the the essentially a Corellian blood stripe going down the side of her black slacks there. Is she deliberately trying to evoke Han Solo in our minds? I mean, I, these are just questions that I throw out there just because, all right? I'm, I don't have a particular, uh, a particular insider information as far as why they're doing what they're doing. But Kennedy, she looks, she looks like the tolerant school marm in this in this photograph. Just to look at her face. But everybody else is dressed pretty much for comfort. Jeans. Favreau's got on tennis shoes and a sweatshirt. Filoni's got his hat. Filoni's always got his hat. But the other thing too is that when you have uh, when you have all of these people wearing dark clothes and and like Mindy says, you know, Kennedy stands out because she's wearing a white shirt. That could be deliberate because in f- photograph compositions, the eye is drawn to the brightest part of the image generally. And she's sitting right there at the at the golden mean point at the division line. If you divide this photograph into thirds, she's right there between the middle and the right hand third. So composition wise, she's in a good place for 
the visual for the eye to be drawn to her. And it all goes through because if you go from Filoni to Chow to Favreau to her, there's almost there's a there's a curve there. You can draw a curve because Filoni's fully seated. Deborah Chow's on the arm of a chair. Favreau's standing up. Kennedy's standing up. And I have to wonder if Favreau refused to sit down. It's all speculation. So, let's get into the meat of the article here. Because it is an interesting article. <clears throat> and it says some things. It says some things that are not consistent with things that what were said before. Uh, Dave says, I don't see the need for the mixing cart. Camera right should have been cropped out. Well, I mean, it's a working set. You're looking at all of the gizmos because you do talk, you know, they're in the volume. They're talking technology and, you know, it, it's cool looking stuff. I, I've, I've done this kind of thing too, where you throw some, you throw some props and you throw some different things in to, to make the shot look cool. And visually, it balances out what's going on in the background behind Filoni because visual weight is something too. So it gives it gives depth into the photograph. It gives uh, layering and and all of those things. So there's reasons for it to be there. Um, or it could just very well be that it was there, and we make it we make it part of the thing because we can't move it. Who knows? All right, so getting into the article here. Kathleen Kennedy's job is to focus on the past, present, and future all at once. Speaking to Vanity Fair for our latest cover story, Star Wars, The Rebellion Will Be Televised, Kennedy discussed the lessons learned during her now decade-long tenure as Lucasfilm's president. Can you believe it's been 10 years? Can you believe it's been 10 years? years since all of this started on the one hand it doesn't feel like it's been that long on the other hand it feels like it's been much longer than that <laughs> 10 years all right so decade-long tenure as lucasfilm's president and expressed enthusiasm about both the new filmmaking technologies they've developed and the new stories on the galaxy's horizon the producer-turned-executive has a filmography that includes not just Raiders of the Lost Ark, E.T., The Extraterrestrial, Jurassic Park, Back to the Future, and The Sixth Sense, but also dozens of other crowd-pleasers and Oscar nominees. Still, she remains eager to explore other worlds. Managing both the galaxy's legacy and destiny would be a test for anyone, especially in an era when TV and movies are blurring, Capturing an audience is harder than ever, and success means giving fans what they desperately crave while also taking them to places they've never even considered. I'm breathing. I'm breathing. All right, so we get into this. I'm not going to get through. We're not going to go through all of the, the video stuff that's included in part of this. So the first question out of the gate in this article from Anthony... Bresnikan. Don't contact any of these people, by the way. Don't find them on don't find them on socials. So Vanity Fair's question. The story we're doing is about Lucasfilm's Star Wars TV universe, but I remember at the last Star Wars celebration held in Chicago in 2019, you announced that there was a bit of a hiatus coming for the films. That's the question. Kathleen Kennedy. Yes. Which is ironic, right? So they're talking about the hiatus, the decision to put the movies on hiatus following the rise of Skywalker. And she says here, because they're asking, was this originally part of the plan? And she says, it really had more to do with recognizing that we were drawing to a close on the saga that George had created and that we were moving into the future of storytelling in the Star Wars universe. We all recognized, every single one of us inside of Lucasfilm, that this was a new chapter for the company and that we needed to all work together to create the architecture for where we were going. 
Simultaneous to us taking a hiatus, Bob Iger changed the strategy of the Walt Disney Company to shift focus towards streaming. At the time, they didn't even know what the streaming service was going to be called. That's how new the idea was. Okay. Oh, Mazurus says YouTube did not notify him that the bunker was live. Well, YouTube shenanigans. Tell ya. So here's the first bit of revisionist history, at least as far as I remember how things went down. Because the announcement of the hiatus for films was not at the same time as the decision to pursue streaming. I think they're related, and I think that Star Wars was a key component in the whole streaming strategy, certainly. Because we're going to use The Mandalorian to sell Disney Plus subscriptions. That was, that was the thing. I think there's a couple of things that were going on at the time. And, and, and I will admit, I'm old, I've slept, it's been many moons since all of this went down. So it is entirely possible that I'm remembering some of this wrong. With that caveat in place, this is not how it happened. Because what happened, when they first bought Lucasfilm, the Walt Disney Company had a plan that they were going to release a Star Wars movie every year. One year it would be a Skywalker saga, part of the trilogy. And on the off years it would be the single individual solo stories. Uh, Dave asked about the eye. The eye is doing much better. Thank you. So you have this strategy now. We're going to roll out a, a Star Wars movie every year. And everybody who heard that, we all kind of kind of looked around and like, how are you going to do that and maintain the quality? Because originally, the, I mean, these, these first six films that George did, you got three years in between each one. Because it takes a long while. Now, granted, technology has advanced. You've got new tools to play with. You've got new ways of doing things, new processes, new things in the pipeline that makes things easier. Gives you much more of an ability to do various different things you couldn't do before. But still, rolling out a Star Wars film every year seemed a bit much. And yes, Mazers, you got Boba Fett and Yoda. They were rumored as anthology movies after Solo. Kenobi was supposed to be a movie as well. And yes, we were supposed to get a Boba Fett film. And Josh Trank was going to direct it. And then Josh Trank imploded after the failure of Fantastic Four. And James Mangold was going to go come back in and do the Boba Fett movie and suddenly the Boba Fett thing fell apart completely and Mangold moved over to Indiana Jones 5 which has taken years to get to the point where now I think principal photography is done finally and all of this, I mean, this is all besides the fact of, of the pandemic and the lockdowns and everything else. This is all before all of that. The Yoda movie, I think, was probably just speculative. I don't think that there was any plans to do a Yoda movie because it's antithetical to everything that George done about Yoda. Yoda was the mystery. We don't tell anybody about where he's from, what his species is, any, no details. And Filoni, for the most part, has, has honored that, has fought for that. And, and, and we get into this in the article. There, there was discussion along those lines with regard to the child. We'll get to that in a minute. But this strategy of one, one Star Wars movie every year seemed untenable. Now, a lot of us outside the industry looking in still had the idea that this was a bad plan. 
And those of us who have been part of the film industry, like me, I'd look at this and say, that's a bad idea because you're going to rush through production of all of these things. You're going to make shortcuts. You're going to make mistakes. And the strategy changed, not because Bob Iger decided to shift over to streaming. The strategy changed because The Last Jedi broke the franchise. The strategy changed when the fans rebelled against what they were trying to do with the sequel trilogy and Solo failed. Solo failed for two... Solo failed three reasons. Solo failed because it wasn't Harrison Ford playing Han Solo. I mean, say what you want about Alden Ehrenreich. He gave he gave it a he gave it the old college try, right? But he's not Harrison Ford. Solo also was not a story that anybody wanted. That's two. And three, Solo was released six months after The Last Jedi broke the fandom. And people came in and said, no more. I'm not giving Star Wars any more of my money. And Solo was a box office failure. Add to that the behind-the-scenes shenanigans where Lord and Miller get fired and they get replaced by, by Ron Howard and you got to shoot all of this new stuff all over again to basically create this whole new, whole new movie that nobody wanted. This thing was doomed from the start. And then The Rise of Skywalker comes out to do this massive U-turn around from The Last Jedi to try to fix things and get some of these fans back. And they spend 45 minutes basically trying to erase the movie that came before it so then they could tell the movie that they wanted to tell. It was a mess. And they've got this, they've got this streaming service that they're working on. And of course, Disney wants to beat Netflix. Right? Netflix was the big streaming monster in the room, the 500-pound gorilla, the 800-pound gorilla, whatever. Right? We want to beat Netflix. How do we beat Netflix? Because Netflix is where, where it's at right now. At the time. Now, not so much. So we've got this technology that we can, that we can do this thing. How do we get people to sign up for it? Because it's a revenue stream. It's money. How do we make money selling this product? I know. Star Wars. The strategy changed not entirely because we have this streaming service. The strategy changed because the movies aren't doing well. Let's try something else. Now, continuing from the article, Kennedy says, What's unique about Star Wars is that we're one story, basically. George was always dealing with episodes. Ironically, he was serializing his storytelling. There's nothing ironic about that. That was the plan from the beginning. He was influenced by Flash Gordon and the cliffhangers on Saturday in movie theaters. All of that informed the DNA of what Star Wars is, which is why I think it's just organic that we made the transition into television. So all of this coalesced. I love to say that we're all strategic geniuses. We're not. At least he's truthful about that. Continuing. I think we all did very effectively was we pivoted. I got lucky. Boy, is there not any more true statement than that. I knew that John Favreau was always deeply interested in Star Wars. He was the first person I went to. What's unique about John is his commitment. He's had the sole focus pretty much on this for the last several years. That's been a godsend. All right. So in this, she acknowledges John Favreau saved Star Wars. There's one. Two, she got lucky because... She got out of the way. Luck had nothing to do with it. This was desperation. How do we fix Star Wars after we broke it? 
Now, here's where we go into some real revisionist history. Because this is this this is where things get interesting. The question from Vanity Fair, when you went to talk to Favreau, was it with a TV series in mind? That's the question. Kennedy's answer, it wasn't an assignment by any means. I went to talk to him because Bob Iger was beginning to have these conversations about creating streaming. I said, hey, I don't know if you would have an interest in coming in and working with us. And he said, not only would I have an interest, I have an idea. So he had been thinking about this unbeknownst to me. Consequently, once John wanted to get involved in Star Wars, I had known for a long time that Dave Filoni had always been interested in making a transition from animation to live action. I have known this almost from the moment I came into the company and really encouraged him. I tried to create opportunities for him to come over to London, to be on the sets, to talk to our directors, to get a sense of what, of what that transition might look and feel like. So I said to Favreau, you need to sit down with Dave. Not because I thought that Dave was going to immediately jump in and start directing, but because I knew that Dave would be a huge, huge added bonus to John's vision. So Kathy Kennedy is claiming credit for connecting Dave Filoni and John Favreau. Now we've seen photographs and there's been acknowledgement that Dave Filoni was on the set of The Last Jedi as part of his apprenticeship, let's say. And... Look, it, it's it. Last Jedi story aside, if you're part of Star Wars, if you're part of Lucasfilm, and you want to learn how to direct live action, then you go where the live action project is currently in production. And at the time, that was the Last Jedi. Where else is he going to go? Because there weren't any TV shows in production. He's an animation guy. The animation stuff is a completely different process in terms of what you're directing. Lucasfilm didn't have any other projects for him to go and observe. So it makes sense that you send him to The Last Jedi because that's, where, that's, that's the work that was being done. Whether he learns the right lessons from somebody like Ryan Johnson, that's a completely different thing. But a lot of people wanted to make this out to be that Dave Filoni and Ryan Johnson were some, some kind of peas in a pod type of thing, and this was proof that Filoni was going to go woke just like everybody else. Jumping to conclusions there, folks. Just because, and, and we see this with the cancel culture, just because you see a photograph of somebody standing next to somebody doesn't necessarily mean that they're associated with each other or that they agree with each other or that they have the same goals as each other. Just keep that in mind because it's thing. Now, I say that Kathy Kennedy is lying and I'll tell you why I say that After this, stand by. Broadcasting from a device built by a teenage genius using leftover parts from an erector set, this is Sci-Fi For Me Radio. The concept of flying cars uh -huh. is just a terrible, terrible idea. Yeah. It is a disastrous idea. People can't drive on a level, flat surface, yeah. let alone, you know, it's... Uh, Trust me, this is one of those things where you want Khan to be thinking two-dimensionally. The H2O Podcast, Monday night at 8, only on Sci-Fi For Me TV. Good morning, Multiverse. Saturday morning at 11, 10 Central, only on Sci-Fi For Me TV. Back live from the bunker, Jason Hunt here. Going through this Vanity Fair article about Star Wars. So Kathleen Kennedy tells, uh, tells Vanity Fair that she's the one that put John Favreau and Dave Filoni together 
prior to developing the Mandalorian. This is not, to my knowledge, not the way it went down. At least it's not the way it's been presented in the past. Let me say it that way. That's maybe safer. I want to take you back to 2019 Star Wars Celebration in Chicago, Illinois. McKenna and I were able to attend. Mrs. Boss got sick <coughs> again. How you feeling over there, Mrs. Boss? Yeah, okay. So we're in... We're, we're at McCormick Place, we're at, at Celebration, and one thing that I noted at the time was Kathleen Kennedy was notable by her absence a lot of that weekend. There, was, there seemed to be, at least, an effort to minimize her presence because, again, remember, this was coming out of the sequel trilogy and uh, a lot of bad blood, a lot of irritation, a lot of annoyance, a lot of anger from fans as to how that sequel trilogy was going. Star Wars Celebration is where we got our first look at The Mandalorian. And we attended that panel. And I live-tweeted that panel as it was going. And one thing that I noted at the time was Kathleen Kennedy introduced John and Dave, said, this is their baby, and she disappeared from the stage. And I noted at the time that she, she was not there claiming credit. She was basically saying, John and Dave put this thing together. Now, that could be strategy. Let's reduce... Let's reduce the expectations that Kennedy is involved in this thing. It's all John and Dave. I had nothing to do with it, so you'll like it because I, it's not mine. That could be part of it. But I think Lucasfilm and Disney understood and recognized <clears throat> that Kennedy's involvement in anything at the time would make those projects radioactive to a certain segment of the of the of the fan population. So what we do is we reduce at least the perception that Kathleen Kennedy is involved in the Mandalorian and that strategy worked because everybody gives it a chance and hey, we all like the Mandalorian, right? This feels like Star Wars. It feels like and again, this goes back to John Favreau and Dave Filoni have saved Star Wars. Well, it's still there's still a question as to whether or not Star Wars has been saved. Because mistakes continue to get made. But I want to take you back to the panel on the Mandalorian. And I have this tweet that I that I posted while the panel was going on. I said John Favreau has been pitching this for years says Dave Filoni was his Sherpa. Now, that's in 2019. Now, what you have to remember is that they've been talking to each other for years prior to that. Now, I go down here a little bit further down. Uh, it says here... Favreau and Filoni also revealed in their joint interview with Vanity Fair that they had started with competing Mandalorian ideas. That's why Kennedy wanted them to join forces. She says, Dave's working on something with Mandalorians too, but it was more the history of the Mandalorians as it related to the work he'd done on the Clone Wars, Favreau recalled. So I think she felt there was potentially two conflicting projects. Now, how much of that is true? Don't know. Because at the time, John Favreau was working on Iron Man. He was finishing up Iron Man, and the Clone Wars was in development. And remember, they both came out in 2008. And there was a conversation where Favreau says to Filoni, well, if you ever need a voice, and this is 2007 when all of this happens, and Filoni says, well, as a matter of fact, 
And that's how Favreau became the voice of Pre Vizsla in the Clone Wars. They've known each other for a very long time. And the way it was related to us at that panel, Favreau went to Filoni. And he may and yes, he pitched he pitched to Kathleen Kennedy too. But he'd been in constant contact and, and conversations with Dave Filoni over the years saying, I want to do I've got this idea, I've got this idea, I've got this idea. So the notion that Filoni had a Mandalorian idea and Favreau had a Mandalorian idea might be true. But how much of this is revisionist? I've got a uh, I've got a tweet here. John Favreau was mixing Iron Man and Dave Filoni was working on Clone, Clone Wars. Favreau, if you ever need a voice, Dave says, well, it just so happens. This was at the beginning of the panel. After which, Favreau and Filoni says they discussed everything, including the prequels, Legends, even the holiday special. Favreau's, Favreau's got a got a special place in his heart for the holiday special. And then they give us the the sizzle reel for the Mandalorian. And then we've got everybody out there, you know, talking about this. They were talking about the scene with the stormtroopers. They don't have enough. Filoni says, I know some people. They bring in the 501st, right? So you got all these, now you've got all these cosplayers on the set. And now they have screen-used costumes, which is kind of cool. And this says here, uh, Dave, Dave Filoni, during this panel. Now remember, this is 2019. This is three years ago. Filoni says... He would not have directed live action without George Lucas being there. At no point do they do they have any kind of acknowledgement here, at least as far as I remember and what I've do- documented here. It the, Kennedy didn't have anything to do with it. Favreau says it's been a wonderful partnership and collaboration with Dave. And at the time, we were talking about Filoni, Favreau, possibly Kevin Feige, because there was rumors swirling around that, Ke- that Kathy Kennedy was on her way out. Well, who's going to be the next president of, of Lucasfilm? And then we have the announcement of the other stuff. We've got Rangers of the New Republic. We've got different location, new volumes that they were building. They started talking about all this stuff with the game engines and all of that grew out of Favreau's use of it for the Jungle Book. Again, we go back to Favreau bringing all of this in. It wasn't, uh, it wasn't technology they developed at Lucasfilm. It was technology that Lucasfilm adapted for use in these productions because Favreau was already doing it. It was his idea to use the game engine stuff and say, hey, what could we do with all of this? And using Unreal Engine and using all of these other things with Industrial Light and Magic and, and that sort of thing. So for for Kathleen Kennedy to be taking credit for all of this to me is a little bothersome because that's not how it was originally presented at Celebration in 2019. Is somebody lying? Now we know Hollywood uses lying as a marketing technique so it's entirely possible that all of them are making stuff up. But if I had to, if I had to flip a coin, if I had to choose between the two, I would say that this presentation of events is probably a little bit less genuine than the actual events, how they came 
to be, maybe. I don't know. Cam1138, see, I see you there in the chat. Good to see you dropping in. What about? Uh, I see you there, too. Um, Sci-Fi Snob says, Ken Kenobi might be the last chance to save the franchise. Maybe. Because there are some things, uh, there are some things here. Now, I want to I skip a little bit on to the TV side because they were talking about the whole Baby Yoda concept and all of that, and... and that's been covered to death. I'm going to get back into that a little bit. However, however, I do want to go into the different uh, the different thoughts when it comes into uh, uh, casting, because this is this is telling from a certain perspective here because. Uh, they're talking about uh, the Boba Fett project becoming a television show as opposed to a film and all of this. Uh, they're asking about the pressure from for making Star Wars. I mean, this is a big franchise. It's a lot. There's a lot invested in it. Um, and they're saying, you know, if Warner Brothers, for the example, Vanity Fair says, if Warner Brothers makes a makes a Batman film and it doesn't work, then they just reboot Batman with a different actor, and you can't do that with Star Wars. This is when it gets interesting, at least in this, in, this, in this part of it. She says, we also can't go do something with Luke Skywalker that isn't Mark Hamill. We're not going to suddenly go try to do that. The beauty of Obi-Wan Kenobi is Ewan desperately wanted to do this. He has been so engaged in the entire process, and our excitement and reason for doing this is that the real Obi-Wan wanted to tell this story. We got excited by the idea that Ewan McGregor wanted to come back and Hayden Christensen wanted to come back. Now, a couple of things there, folks. The real Obi-Wan was Alec Guinness. They did recast Obi-Wan Kenobi because they had to go younger for the prequels. Ewan McGregor is not the real Obi-Wan Kenobi, at least not the only real Obi-Wan Kenobi. To say it this way sounds a little bit like she's dismissing Alec Guinness's performance. Maybe she's not doing that. And to characterize McGregor as desperately wanting to do this, that's not how he describes it in another interview. And I can't remember, I think it's Empire Magazine that came out here a couple of weeks ago. And we covered this on, on Salacious Crumbs. We, we quoted him. Over the years, people have been asking him if he wanted, if he was going to come back. There was the question, right? Everybody, and he's like, yeah, it'd be fun to do. It'd be, it'd be fun to come back. And then he got the phone call from Michelle Rejwan saying, are you serious? Do you really want to do this? Would you, would you really consider it? So all of this time where Ewan McGregor has been desperately wanting to come back, he's just been saying, yeah, it'd be fun to do. It'd be fun, it'd be fun to keep going. And say, I, I, don't, I don't see that as him being desperate to return to the character. Because when Michelle Rejwan calls him and says, do you mean it? That indicates to me that nobody, nobody knows that he really means it. He could just be saying that, you know, be nice for the, be nice for the cameras, be nice for the interviews. Oh yeah, it'd be fun to come back. Sure. Why not? Yeah. Why? Yeah. Okay. But now it becomes a real thing when Lucasfilm calls him and says, Are, do you really want to do this? Would you seriously consider it? Now the ball gets rolling. Now the, the wheels get turning. And originally, like we know, the, this was supposed to be a movie. And then the movies imploded. But this leads to Solo. And the question here from Vanity Fair, I don't want to put you in an awkward spot. Yes, we're very understanding of, of our interview subject, but this was an understanding you've come to that was developed from Solo. I don't want to trash Alden. I think he did a good job, but the idea that you can't really replace Luke Skywalker, was that something you learned from that movie, or how, how would you put it? So can't, Kathy says... I think back, and Solo was one of the first ideas that came up with when the company was sold. One of the first people I went to was Larry Kasdan. 
Larry and I have known each other forever. He was so excited to tell that story. We genuinely believed at the time it was a good idea. I'm going to take her at her word to a point. Because here's a couple of things. If and and this goes back to my discussion of prequels the other day. Everybody, we're all on these prequel, 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 prequel. Every every show, every show is getting a prequel. The reason for that is if you go to a prequel and you go to a younger version of the character, you get a new actor who's cheaper and possibly will stay in that character for longer than a year or two or a movie or two or three. It's just like over in Marvel. You get Marvel, you sign up to play a character in the Marvel Cinematic Universe, you're locked in for years with commitments to all of these different projects. You know, it's not just one and done and, and see ya. Star Wars is the same kind of thing. And if we're doing prequels, we get younger people who don't cost as much. And then we can build a new fandom around these new characters and we can go exploring and make money off of this new stuff that we've developed rather than dip into the Skywalker well all the time. On the surface, it's not a bad idea because you do need to expand the franchise. You do need to explore this universe with other characters in addition to Luke, Han, and Leia. Because Luke Skywalker and Han Solo are not like James Bond. You can't just recast the character. It's not like Doctor Who where you have an in-show canon explanation why you have somebody else playing this character. So what we what we have here is Kennedy acknowledging that Solo ended up being not quite what they expected. And she says here, uh, there should be moments along the way when you learn things. That may have certainly been a learning moment. Some people have talked about how well maybe Solo should have been a TV show, but even doing Solo as a TV show without Harrison Ford as Han Solo, it's the same thinking. Maybe I should have recognized this before. Yeah. We would never make Indiana Jones without Harrison Ford. Having just finished the fifth movie, I can tell you there wasn't a day I wasn't on set where I wasn't like, yes, this is Indiana Jones. Now, a couple of things you can pull away from that. Chris Pratt is not going to play Indiana Jones. At least not now. But the other thing is, if it was a mistake to put, uh, if it was a mistake to put Alden Ehrenreich in as Han Solo, was it also a mistake to put in uh, Donald Glover as uh, Lando Calrissian? And what does that mean for the Lando Calrissian series that we're supposedly getting? And yes, Cam, they did make Indiana Jones without Ford for Young Indiana Jones Chronicles. That was that was something that Lucas did mainly to develop the television process for Lucasfilm. That was one. Uh, but also, when you have young Indiana Jones like that, those those stories take place in a couple of different time periods. One when when uh, when Indy was a kid. And again, we go back to this prequel thing. You're going to get somebody younger who can last, you know, three or four or five years. And then you get Sean Patrick Flannery as Indiana Jones in his 20s. But at the same time, you had at least one and I think two appearances by Harrison Ford as Indy. So there's an acknowledgement that this is the same character, not a reboot. And back then, it was a little bit, it was a little bit of a of a different kind of animal because prequels weren't all over the entertainment landscape like they are now. But that's an interesting point that you make because that also goes back to Kathleen Kennedy's statement about how there how there's never been any source material on anything, right? And she does get into that a little bit. Um, <clears throat> Uh, Dave says, don't forget about Gareth Edwards being fired and replaced by Tony Gilroy. That's 
that was part of as far as Rogue One goes. But see, the thing about it is, though, Rogue One actually kind of works. And I know some people say that there's plot holes and there's some structure things there, but um, Rogue One is one of the few Disney Star Wars films that actually kind of holds together. It at least entertains. But but when you get Tony Gilroy calling uh, calling who who is it played uh, Diego Luna to tell him his idea for the Cassian Andor prequel, I don't have a whole lot of confidence in that. Because refugees and imperialist governments and all of that as part of the conversation, I don't have a whole lot of faith in Andor being anything other than a political screed of some sort. We're going to get preached to, preached at in that, in that series. So, so that, that's a factor. Now, uh, in this in this article, just talking about you know Harrison Ford is the only one who can play uh, can play Indiana Jones. Indiana Jones. Thank you. He's also the only one really for fans who can play Han Solo. Aaron Wright gave it the gave it the old college try. Like I've said, I mean Aaron Wright did okay, but this was uh, this was a completely unnecessary film. And maybe it would have worked better as a TV show. Maybe it would have performed better if it had been released six months later than it was. Because it was released six months after The Last Jedi. And you have to acknowledge that that's that's a factor. The failure of Solo, not necessarily because of Solo itself. The failure of Solo is because The Last Jedi pissed off the fandom i mean there's no there's no two ways about it that's that's why solo failed solo lost money because the last jedi broke the franchise so cam says i think a tv show involving lando and han in their younger days could have been fine could be i don't think we're ever going to get it And they're talking about the whole thing with Ray and Ray's Ray's origins and stuff like that. Um, one thing here that Kennedy says she calls Obi Wan a master Jedi, not a Jedi master. I'm gonna let that pass, but uh <sighs> This is the kind of thing that makes fans wonder if she actually understands what she's got her hands on as an executive. Just saying. Uh, Mazer says, I think we might get a digitized young Harrison Ford in these TV shows eventually. It doesn't make up for Solo, but there we are. Well, I mean, you look at the deal that Marvel just made with Stan, uh, with uh, that, that lets them bring Stan Lee back uh, for digital cameos, and we've talked about this with, you know, with Carrie Fisher and Peter Cushing, both showing up in Rogue One as digital characters. Eventually, you're not, you're not going to need any actors. You're just going to just license somebody's image and put it on a put it on a body that's that's doing motion capture. We don't need we don't need new talent. We'll just resurrect James Dean. We'll resurrect John Wayne. We'll resurrect... uh, uh, um, Lana Turner. We'll resurrect... um, George Carlin. Chris Farley. Patrick Swayze. We'll just, we'll just license their images and we'll create new stuff out of whole cloth and, and it'll all be fake. Right? Um, so we've got the Acolyte. Kathleen Kennedy uh, 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 acknowledges that it doesn't have anything to do with what Dave and John are doing. So if that fails or succeeds, it will be on its own merits and it won't have anything to do with what Favreau and Filoni are doing. Which is telling. 
And it will be a good basis for comparison that you can sit there and say, okay, well, Favreau and Filoni's stuff is doing X. Acolyte did green. It doesn't work. We don't, we don't get any more. And okay. You know, the high Republic is a test bed. They're experimenting with stories. They want to, they want to expand beyond the Skywalker saga, which is all well and good. Perfectly fine if you want to do that. There are plenty of novels in the old extended universe that go beyond that. Peripherally, at least. There's some Han Solo stuff. There's some Lando Calrissian stuff. There's there's stuff that's peripherally on the edge of the Skywalker saga, but they don't have anything to do with Skywalker saga. you got Tales from Jabba's Palace. you got the Bounty Hunter stuff. So there's... There is some of that that exists, and yes, it's all it's all source material. But she does say this. They say because they ask her. They say is publishing the test kitchen for some of these new eras. Talking about the High Republic, and she says it is. That's something we put into motion about five years ago because we don't have the benefit of just pulling a book off the shelf. Again, she's going back to this idea that there wasn't any uh, there wasn't any material they could pull from for stories. And I've talked about this before. If you have all of this stuff, all of this, all of the these books, and comic books and everything which is outside, quote-unquote, outside of canon. <clears throat> and a case can be made that the extended universe was canon based on things that, things that Lucas said, things that Lucasfilm said, but you could also make the argument that it was outside of canon because of things that Lucas said and things that Lucasfilm said. So, you know, it's up for debate. If you want to consider it canon, then okay. And to Kathy Kennedy's point about not not having source material, I take it to mean that you can't just adapt one of the books because the books in the extended universe were all of a piece. It was all of this longer narrative that if you have this one book that you take and you try to adapt it, then you're either going to end up changing a bunch of stuff or you're going to have to spend a lot of time explaining stuff that nobody's seen before. Because how many people have read the books? So a direct, straight-up adaptation of anything in the extended universe will, would be a challenge. I get that. The way she's saying it, however, when she says there's no source material, people understandably are going to deride her for that. Because the way she's saying it makes her sound like an idiot. Now, as we've seen, they're, they're picking and choosing and cherry-picking the elements from those stories to create new stories that are canon. Thrawn and, and, and that sort of thing. But... You have... You, it's a it, it's a balance that you have to strike between being beholden to a bunch of EU material that a limited audience has been exposed to, and it does lock you into certain things that have to be done a certain way if you're going to respect that as canon. It limits what kind of stories that you can tell. Okay. But... You gotta be careful how you say it. Uh, she's talking about uh, different things as far as virtual reality. Lucasfilm has has, has played with television before. Um, what about says they have no issue with hijacking characters from that source material that doesn't exist. I see, and I think people have mischaracterized what what Kennedy said with that. Yes, there's all of that existing material. And yes, you can pull elements from it, but like I said, you can't do a direct, straight-up, one-to-one adaptation. One, all of your actors are too old for all of those stories, which means you would have to recast. And two, if you were to do something like adapting 
the original Thrawn trilogy, you're introducing all new story threads and everything with Mara Jade and, and the Emperor's Hand and all these other things, where if you decide to go in a different direction from that, now you're now you're diverging in your timelines between the Thrawn trilogy books, the Thrawn trilogy movies, and, and where do you go from there? I mean, it becomes complicated. I get it. But this article... This article does a lot to try to establish Kathleen Kennedy as the voice of reason, the one who's managing all of the... We're learning as we go, and we're developing new ideas, and we're and we're coming up with things better. We're doing it better than we did before, and all this, and and still burnish her reputation. And you know, some somebody up in the thread mentioned mentioned Cameron Pasha. I have uh, I have been in correspondence with Cameron. He is in the middle of writing. Uh, some various different projects that he's working on, so he's kind of backed away a little bit from being on YouTube so much to in in order to concentrate on doing that. So I doubt I don't think we're going to be able to get Cameron on here for a while to talk about this article. He may do something over on his Patreon, uh, and I do encourage people to go check that out. But um, but it goes back to something that he does that he did say a while back. On her way out, Kathleen Kennedy is going to get recognized and is going to get all these awards and all these pats on the back and all of this stuff. This could be part of that. Let's shore up her reputation. Let's make sure that she doesn't go out on a, on a, on a downer. It's entirely possible. And we, there's still, you know, yes, her contract got extended, but... I think after Indiana Jones 5 is finished, I think she's done. That's just me. But I think she's done after Indiana Jones 5. Who gets it after that? No telling. Who knows? <coughs> anyway, I, say, I said it was going to be a short show. It's actually been a long show, which is fine because I haven't gotten the call. Uh, that says my delivery is ready. So it actually all kind of works out, right? I do encourage people to go talk, uh, go uh, take a look at this past uh, Monday's H2O podcast where, uh, where we talked about stories that are grounded in reality you know, actually applying real-world physics to some of these stories can be a little problematic and such. Uh, by the way, just uh, in case anybody's keeping track, Disney stock right now sitting at $103.56 per share. I, I, I tell you, it could dip below 100 It could dip below 100 It hasn't yet, but it could. I don't know. Dave, thanks very much for uh, for those kind words there. Uh, I guess uh, I guess you heard the H2O thing. Getting Grounded was another great show topic. Thank you. I appreciate that. It's it's one of those things where, you know, we we come up with these topics, we come up with these discussions, we're like, well, is anybody going to be interested in this? And it's nice to know that, that people respond to that. Uh, we are kicking around an idea. I've, I've yet to hear back from Tim, but we've got an idea for Monday that um, should be pretty fun for those who are aware of a certain particular German low-budget filmmaker uh, who's got an affinity for boxing. I'll leave that uh, for you to ruminate on, and <laughs> we'll do that. Uh, also, don't forget, uh, coming up on Saturday, we have a Good Morning Multiverse uh, at 11 a.m. Eastern, 10 Central. We've got uh, the week's headlines, science fiction, fantasy, horror, comic books, video games, and uh, Comic-Con updates, and the weather, all that Saturday morning so uh hopefully you join us for that 
Uh, German. German, yes. Uh, not Gables. Um, should I tell you? Should I tell you? He has directed a number of very low-budget, some would say garbage-tier, low-budget films. A lot of them adaptations of video games. All right, I will leave you with this. No, not Jodorowsky. Jodorowsky is not German. Many of the truths we cling to depend greatly on our own point of view. Right? Remember, they want you to think that there are five lights, but in actuality, there are four lights. Thanks for being here, everybody. This has been a presentation of Sci-Fi For Me Radio. Copyright 2022 by Flaming Dog Media, LLC. All rights reserved. No portion of this program may be retransmitted without the express written consent of Flaming Dog Media.